Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Good morning, everyone. Do grab a Bible, if you haven't got one. There's various scattered around. Let me pray for us. Lord, please help us to be open to you, to what you might want to say to us, to what you might want to show us, to how you might want to touch us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week, you will know that Ed introduced our new sermon series, which is about prayer. Uh, And I'm carrying on kind of from where he left off. What we decided to do with this series is not so much what does the Bible teach about prayer, but what examples of people praying can we find in the Bible? When I went to Scripture Union camps when I was a teenager, we learned how you ought to read the Bible. I don't know if it's still the same. And this first slide gives you um, a kind of shorthand way of engaging with a Scripture passage. I don't know if you use this or something like this. What does the passage teach about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Is there a command, a promise, or a warning, an example to follow, or an error to avoid? And I think there is no passage in the whole of Scripture that would somehow be exempt from one one or more of those questions. Um, What we're majoring on, I think, in this series is the example bit. So what can we learn um, from Scripture about prayer through the examples of certain people? And the example that, uh, that I have this morning is Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus set a very good example of prayer, and we often hear the gospel writers saying he went off to pray before this, or he went off to be on his own, or uh, it all got very busy and he went off to pray, that kind of thing. So often uh, the gospel writers comment that Jesus prays. What is also fabulous is that we actually have some of the real true life prayers of Jesus. I don't know exactly how we got them, but maybe they were in public places and people heard and remembered the words that Jesus used when he prayed. So there are quite a few. I've just got um, a couple of examples. Let's have the first one. This is a thank you prayer. Sorry, the writing's a bit small. Um, It's from Matthew uh, chapter 11. And it's just before Jesus says, um, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, that bit. Um, 
Jesus is thrilled to bits that God is at work in people's lives. And it's the particularly um, heavy, heavy laden people that Jesus is noticing are responding to him. Not the wise and intelligent ones, but those who might be described as infants. Jesus is thanking God. Wow. I just love the idea of Jesus being wowed as he sees God's work in the lives of real human beings. So this is kind of a bit of a wow prayer, I think, of Jesus. He's thrilled that God is at work. It's a kind of a thank you prayer, if you like. And the other example that I've picked is a please prayer from the very famous long prayer um, in John chapter 17. Have a look if you want to. And there are lots of things here that Jesus says please for. And I've picked out some of the things. He, Jesus prays that his followers would be protected from evil. Jesus prays that his followers would be united. And lovely third bit on this slide, Jesus prays, just as we've been singing, that we would see him in all his glory. And we know that Jesus is praying this for us and not just for his 12 disciples because it specifically says Not just for these people I'm praying, but for those who will believe through them. And so many generations later, that's us. Jesus is praying for us. And we read elsewhere that Jesus always lives to intercede for us the whole time. Jesus is praying for us. And maybe this, uh, John chapter 17, gives us a clue, the kind of things that Jesus is praying for us. Praying that we would be kept safe, praying that we would be united I'm praying that we would see him in all his glory. Wow, that's what Jesus prays for you and me every day forever. And um, here's another prayer of Jesus. When does Jesus pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus prays that on the cross. Where does he get those words from? He's quoting from Psalm 22 that we've just had read. Thank you for reading so beautifully, Anne and Tim. And so that's the focus for today. Jesus praying, and in particular, Jesus praying in Gethsemane, which we'll come on to in a bit. Um, That was obviously our second reading. The reason I've chosen to focus on the Gethsemane thing is because I think it is such a powerful example of a human being... Jesus at his most human, being real with God. Jesus, his most human, his most real. And the message in that for me is it is okay to be real. It's okay to have all the thoughts, all the feelings, all the passions, all the longings, all the fears, all the horrible stuff that I have. That is okay and God can cope with it. Jesus is struggling, to say the least, and that's okay. And it's okay for us to be real with God about our struggles. Jesus really knows what it's like. So my message this morning is this. Let's be real. Let's be real with ourselves. Let's be real with God. Let's be real with each other. Let's be real with the people that we meet Monday to Saturday all around us at work or wherever. Okay, so three points. Let's be real with God. Now for the next picture. 
Have you ever felt like that? That's Jesus. Jesus is alone. Jesus is in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know how you would begin to label some of the emotions that Jesus is experiencing, but just have a look at that desperate, desperate picture. But it's okay to rant and rage and rave at God. It's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to say, please, please, please. It's okay to say, no, no, no. It's okay to say, help, help, help. And it's okay to say, why, why, why? Jesus expresses those kinds of things. The psalmist does in Psalm 22. God can cope. We don't have to worry about if God can handle all this stuff. It's okay to be real. And you know, I think until we're real, I'm not sure we get into the new place of trust. I'm not sure we ever really discover what God is like until we push through. And it might take a very long time in that place. Maybe it's almost more than we can bear to think about. And for some people, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you might be in that kind of a place this morning. In the end, something will change. In the end, we will come through to a new place. Maybe sometimes it feels like we're getting somewhere, but then the next thing, we're back in the blackness again. Eventually, we will come through to a new place. Doesn't mean it's all over. After Gethsemane, Jesus had worse to come. But he got to a place of resolution, of surrender, of trust. And so did the psalmist. If you've got a Bible there, have a look. It's page 554. Psalm 22. And those opening two verses, pretty desperate. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer by night, but I find no rest. But verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. There's, there's some kind of progress, I suppose you might say. But then verse 6, but I am a worm. I don't know if you feel like that sometimes. Just that despising, that, I don't know what you call, lack of self-esteem sounds just not strong enough. That I'm nothing, I'm rubbish scorned, despised, mocked, insulted. But verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. Again, 
he's found himself beginning to move forward to a place of hope. And by the end, if you've got your Bible there, you can scroll, scroll scan right onto the end of, of the psalm, and you can see it's almost a different person. He's really come into some kind of resolution. And you know there's a theory that originally Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 were all of a piece. What's Psalm 23 about? The Lord's my shepherd. Probably the supreme psalm of trust in the whole collection. What a contrast. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And maybe that's almost too good to be true, that journey. But I think if we hang on in there, we will get to a new place. Because this is about prayer, not from the head, but from the heart. This is about being real, not just about our thoughts, but about our feelings. This is how Jesus prays on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a prayer from the head. This is the real thing, if you like. This is so much about being real with God. Okay, this is getting very heavy. I have a nice picture for you now. Okay, what's going on in this picture? It's not clever, not a, not a clever... Thank you. Jesus is teaching. Um, Jesus has just been asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. So he teaches them the... Exactly. Okay, let's see if we can remember it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come... Your will be done. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if God's will was done and everything was all pretty and, you know, just like in the Garden of Eden and it was nice, if everything was nice. If God's will was done, it would be very nice. And that's a lovely prayer to pray in general. But when we get to the place where we have to pray that prayer, your will be done, in relation to a specific situation, it is not such an easy prayer to pray. Maybe it's a terrifying prayer to pray. I guess that for Jesus it was. He just taught them how they should pray. Your will be done. And now look what he's faced with. He's having to pray the exact same prayer himself. If you want to look, it's page 997 in the, in the blue-green Bibles. Matthew chapter 26. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he goes away, comes back, Praise it again, but it isn't quite the same. Do you notice there's been movement? My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, 
may your will be done. Something's happening. I don't want to get too head about it, but it does look like an illustration of that movement that can only come through struggling with the reality of the situation. This is such a trivial example. I, I feel embarrassed to, to share it in a way in, in, you know, in, in the context of such profound pain. But when my daughter was about 10, she got a chance to be an extra in one of the Harry Potter films. And it was all so exciting. Um, but then we got the dates when she needed to be available. And our two-week family holiday was bang in the middle of the whole lot. And you know, this is one of the times when I can remember praying with such lying on the floor on my face passion that somehow she would still be able to be in this stupid film. It mattered to me so much, I think because I felt guilty that our holiday was messing up her chances. And she was only 10, so she couldn't be left home alone. And the reason I remember it, I think, is because of the agony, the passionate prayer that God would make it all right. And coming through to a place where I was willing to let go of it. I mean, as it turned out, she, she did get to be in the thing. But that wasn't the point. The point was that I felt so strongly that I wanted this thing to happen. And yet somehow, eventually, I managed to be in the place, by the grace of God, where I could let go. I appreciate it's very trivial, but it's the experience of just being willing to go on bothering with God until something happens, because it will happen. It might take a long time, but God doesn't change, as the psalmist knew. There's no shortcut. It's about carrying on in with the thumping and ranting and raving and raging, wrestling, until we know that God is good, that God can be trusted, that God is love. The piece of scrap paper that I'm hoping you got as you came in is meant to be that. It's a piece of scrap paper. Thank you, Caroline. If anybody didn't get a bit of paper, there's some spares. Stick your hand up. Um, the scrap paper is for you to take home and dare to be real with God. To dare to be more real than you've ever been before, all on your own, this is not for anybody else to know about. What would you like to say to God that you've never quite dared or not for a while. And maybe there's somebody else you can think would find this helpful, and you might suggest the same to them, or even give them a piece of scrap paper. So this is a dare to be real with God. There's a book, God on Mute, I don't know if anyone's read this, by Pete Gregg, and this is all about when God just doesn't seem to be there anymore. When God doesn't seem to listen, God doesn't seem to care, nothing happens. It's a great book. Okay, that was long, but the rest of it's shorter. So let's be real with God. Let's be real with each other. Hyacinth Bouquet, do you remember her? It was all about uh, what's on the outside. It's all about keeping up appearances. It's all about... Um, 
let's be respectable with Church of England. It's about behaving nicely in church and even over coffee. It's about having certain rules for what is and isn't appropriate, which is fine up to a point, but it means perhaps that we tolerate a degree of unreality. Just think for a moment what you would have to do to break the rules. If you go out loudly sobbing, everyone will turn around, and what will they think? They'll think, I don't know, you know what you would think if if somebody did that. That would be, on the whole, I think, against the rules. But what's so awful about being upset about something and going out? It'd be better if you stayed in. But I think we'd feel we had to go out. You know, we mustn't make a scene in church. You know, what are the rules? And often when you think about what would it take to break the rules, the rules suddenly become very clear. What if you felt like this? Please, please, please. No, no, no. Help, help, help. Why, why, why? What if you were in that place? Could you tell anybody? Could you tell anybody here? Could you tell somebody in your home group? Who could you tell? Please tell someone. Please try to find someone. Please at least sound out someone that you think might be willing to hear today or or this week if you're in a place like that. Suppose someone else wanted to tell you that they felt like that. How would, you, how would you be with that? Would you be willing to listen? Would you be willing to stay with them in their pain? Or might you just want to make it all better? Sort of patch them up. Give them a tissue, definitely give them a tissue quickly. This is embarrassing, I don't like this, I, I, I can't cope. Um, And I just think you should, it's not that bad. I'm sure it'll all be fine. It's hard to stay with people in pain. It's hard to really listen to fear and anger and grief, aloneness. I worked um, as a midwife until quite recently. So being with people in pain is something that you do if you're a midwife. It's about learning not to be too quick to offer the epidural or or whatever else, because people don't necessarily want you to fix their pain. They just want you to be with them in it. And of course, in midwifery, on the whole, you get a happy outcome, but you don't always. And I've done uh, some stillbirth funerals, which were horrible. Because we don't always know what the outcome's going to be. We can't just reassure generously in all directions because we don't know. People who are bereaved, people who are facing a terminal illness, suppose they want to tell you what it's really like. Do we just push the tissues at them and and wish they'd talk to somebody else? Are we willing to be real? Are we willing to have people be real with us? This is even more difficult. Supposing that someone here is the cause of your pain. 
Are you willing to be real with them about that? Are we willing to be real at the level of relationships? Willing to believe that if we were honest about what was going on, we might come through to a better place in that relationship. Another book, Messy Spirituality, Mike Iaconelli. Lovely book about being a church full of people who are real, not just people who are respectable. Okay, third point. Let's be real outside. I think sometimes we feel we've got to um, kind of present on behalf of God. Uh, God's this kind of product. Um, We need to make God look like he's a really nice bloke so that other people will want to get involved with him or, or whatever it is we think we're doing. But you know, sometimes I think God's horrible. Sometimes I think God is really unfair. And I was telling this to this atheist the other day. Um, I do close pastoring, which is like street pastoring, only it happens in daylight outside the cathedral. And um, we chat to people who are visiting. Um, Sometimes they're locals, sometimes they're not. And um, I tend to wear a collar, so it's very easy to get into conversations about God. And I was talking to this bloke who was a retired scientist, uh, and because he was a scientist, he said, therefore, he was an atheist. And I found myself being very honest with him about stuff that really bugged me about God, which you think was not a good tack with an atheist. Um, And we had done some of the sort of head stuff, you know, and I'd made one or two points, and he'd made one or two points. And, you know, head stuff, I'm not sure it gets us anywhere much. But once I started sharing some heart stuff with him, he was quite interested. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, he said, if I ever had a religion... It would be Christianity. So I suppose the moral of the story is even being real with people outside the church might be just the thing, because it's about being real. People respect realness. They think Christians, probably do think Christians are respectable, but who's interested in respectability? It's not much of a product. But to be real, to be real with God, to be real with other people, Isn't that something that people are interested in? A place, a relationship, where it's okay to be real. If if you don't like talking to people outside because you get worried about all the questions they might ask, my final um, recommendation is um, this book by John Pritchard, How to Explain Your Faith. How to Explain Your Faith. John Pritchard answers all the sort of usual questions and There's lots of really lovely practical stuff in there. I'm not sure that's the issue for a lot of people. I think people are more interested in a message from the heart than a message from the head. So, just to recap, this is about daring to be real with ourselves and with God, with one another, and out there tomorrow, at work, down your street, with whoever you're socializing with. Dare to be real dare to live out of our hearts and not just out of our heads. Amen. Just close our eyes for a few moments and think about is an area of my life where I'm not being real.
Let's just sit for a moment. Is there a bit we keep hidden? What might be a next step for us? As we stay in that attitude of prayer, and I invite whoever's doing the intercessions to lead us in those. <laughs>